Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to Jesus, Justice, and Status by Rev. Christy Mannion. Last week, Rev. Yonker preached about the correlation between justification and justice, and we saw that hearts Jesus changes through encounter with himself flow out in active concern for those whom the rest of the world overlooks. And this week, in the second part of a two-part series, we're looking at the ways the priorities of Jesus' kingdom bump up against the systems of the Roman Empire. We're opening this morning to Luke chapter 14, where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, where he's the guest at the house of a prominent Pharisee for the Sabbath meal, and where we are told he is being carefully watched So with that setting in mind, let's open to Luke 14, verse 7, page 623 in the Bibles in front of you. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. These are God's words. Thanks be to God. In 1737, the first Church of Christ in Northampton, Massachusetts, was outgrowing its meeting house, and so a new building was under construction. But a conflict was brewing, and it had to do, of all things, with a pew policy, a church seating chart. Northampton's leaders wanted to adjust the pew policy for the new building in a way that its pastor found unconscionable. And the conflict, one historian says, became a turning point, a link in the chain, that ultimately led this church to let their pastor go. The pastor was Jonathan Edwards, Protestant minister, missionary, active shaper of revival efforts in the American colonies during that time. Today, Edwards is noted as one of the finest Reformed theologians and philosophical thinkers born on this continent. And during his ministry, he recognized evangelism through preaching the gospel, and acts of mercy and justice as two sides 
of the same coin. Northampton's existing seating policy had been determined by a mixture of seniority in the congregation, service to the community, and financial donations to the church. But in the new building, the role of financial donations in determining priority seating was greatly increased relative to the other factors. So the writer Greg Forrester continues, Edwards was livid. He saw the new policy as a flagrant idolatry of money. He fought tooth and nail against it, and he lost. So on Christmas Day, the first Sunday in the new building, Edwards did not preach on the heavenly peace brought by the baby in the manger. He preached on the issue of the day. He said this, Some have more stately houses than others. Some are in higher office than others. Some are richer than others. Some have higher seats in the meeting house than others. But all graves are upon a level. Edwards goes on to describe the churchyard scene, if you happened to be one of those buried there, in such a way that I don't feel like it's sensitive, given our congregation has had so much loss, to repeat it here. And so now go in peace, brothers and sisters, as you contemplate the happy thought of the churchyard. Greg Forrester goes on to say this, Northampton's wealthiest had just paid for a front row seat in their own spiritual evisceration. Jonathan Edwards got just as exercised about status and power based on rank, financial wealth, and church seating as Jesus did at the prominent Pharisee's table. Jesus' message that we read today is as pointed as potentially offensive as that Christmas Day sermon at Northampton. Guests, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't scramble for the places of honor. A person more important than you may have been invited. Host, when you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. Put another way, guests, your way about this is all wrong. Mr. Esteemed Pharisee, when you give a banquet, don't invite the sorts of people that are currently around this table right here today. Is Jesus really concerned about dinner party etiquette? Is he just offering practical wisdom to us on how to avoid embarrassment when we go somewhere for dinner? Luke gives us a clue that he's pointing to something more. Luke calls Jesus' instruction a parable, a teaching with significance that goes beyond the present instance. When Jesus says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, he is pointing to God's role in establishing a kingdom order. In the order of God's kingdom, no one has to elbow to the front of the line. No one is disqualified based on worldly status. Everyone at the table shares the same status. The status of guests, unworthy to be there but made worthy by the invitation. History also gives us clues about what's happening in this passage. Last week, 
Peter mentioned Dr. Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, and Keller points out that in this passage, Jesus is addressing the patronage system, an intricate network of relationships that were operating in the Roman world of that time. So patrons were people with means and influence who would support clients who had a lower status in society. Patrons would help them, their clients, climb up the social ladder. And in return, clients would be ever obligated to pay off a debt of gratitude. They would work to advance the interests of their patrons. In this system, the primary way of networking was to have a dinner. In a world like this, there were no self-made men, not to mention the women. And if you were not already at the table, it wasn't very easy to get a seat. The best seats in the banquet house were based on your social capital. Good seats meant access to potentially new beneficial relationships. So the prominent Pharisees' dinner guests aren't just hoping for a hot plate of food. They want a brush with greatness. They want to network in the way a reporter elbows in to position herself for the scoop. If you were linked into the patronage system failing to return an invitation or invite your relatives or your friends or your rich neighbors, was, according to Keller, economic and social disaster. Inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to a banquet could literally humble you by association, and you would become like those you had invited. So offer resources and relationships to the poor and the blind and the lame and the crippled, and you would kiss the benefits of your social network goodbye. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus asks his followers to do. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame are prized members of God's kingdom. They matter to Jesus. So they matter to his disciples. Keller writes, Jesus commanded that his disciples should share their homes and build relationships not with people from their own social class or higher who would profit them, but people who were poor, without influence, who could never pay them back with money or favors. Now, Jesus is not forbidding the friendly exchange of casseroles between friends when you're having a rough time. He is not saying you may never have dinner with your friends. He is saying that citizens of his kingdom shouldn't advance systems and structures in which those who have get more. Those who do not have watch as the little they have is taken away. Instead, Jesus' people actively seek out relationships with people who cannot benefit them in terms of wealth, status, or influence. So ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom are to be radically and self-sacrificially invested in those whom the rest of the world doesn't see. Jesus' kingdom people are to consider their circle of influence, their own seats at the table, and invite those who are overlooked to pull up a chair, too. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection 
of the righteous. Now, it's true we don't operate in the same patronage system that those in the Roman Empire did. But it remains true that some of us are advantaged in ways that others aren't. I am an advantaged one. I've had uninterrupted access to food and water and clothes and shelter. I grew up in a family of faith, a family that could support me and launch me and didn't need me to work to support it. I attended schools where my soul was shaped, where teachers invested in me and my skills grew. I've lived in one place long enough to make enough connections and relationships that helped me get started in my life's work. The list could go on and on. And as I become more aware of how totally unfair that is, I try to receive these things, not with guilt, but with thankfulness and with open hands. Because these underlying givens propelled me into a comfortable and relatively functional adult life. Not everybody can say that, perhaps including some of us who are listening today. So with the Apostle Paul, I ask myself, who makes me different from anyone else? What do I have that I did not receive? And if I did receive it, why do I boast as if I didn't? So when we encounter people who don't have the status or the resources, the influence that we do, a small step toward obeying Jesus in this, to inviting the overlooked, is maybe just to become quietly curious, quietly curious about why our situations might be so different. What is it in another person's life? What is it about history? and families, and culture, and workplaces that factors into the way to where they find themselves today. What factors into the the place I find myself today? The choices that we're able to make matter, and so so does the life situation that we receive. We may never be able to fully answer the questions, but the posture itself widens our field of vision. Another step and some motivation toward following Jesus on this is in asking him to give us eternal perspective. When Jesus commands his kingdom people to invite the overlooked, to use their influence for those who don't have power, he offers them a picture of the kingdom yet to come. And it comes with a promise. Although they cannot repay you, Jesus says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Maybe you're a student with a wide circle of friends. You're a citizen of God's kingdom and you're operating within the kingdoms of this world. You start to become curious about another student who doesn't seem to have the same social skills or the same network that you do. You realize you might be willing to cash in some of your social capital to invite this newcomer into your group. And it could cost you something. And to you, Jesus says, this is really important to me. I'm good for it. I will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. 
Or maybe you own a business and it has some financial margin to work with, and you're a citizen of God's kingdom, operating in the kingdom of this world. And you begin to be curious about a job applicant with potential and unproven track record, maybe some hard times in the past. You think it over, talk to a few references, realize that you're willing to take a risk to hire this person. And it could cost you something. But don't worry, Jesus says, I am good for it. I will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. I almost can't believe Jesus says that. He who needs nothing and has everything, he who invites us to the feast of his everlasting kingdom, he who washes us to make us presentable in his own blood, he gives us a place in his love, feeds us at his table. This God would consider obedience to him on, on this, a debt that he will repay to us? That feels ludicrous, backwards. It's upside down. But it's what Jesus says. And it's what Proverbs 19, 17 says too. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will reward them for what they've done. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. So I'm standing on the shoulders of another huge Christian imaginative preacher named C.S. Lewis. He offers us a fantastical picture of God's kingdom in the life to come in his book, The Great Divorce. Lewis's narrator takes an imaginary bus trip from hell to the outskirts of heaven, where he meets residents of heaven. And at one point, the narrator is stopped in his tracks by the beauty and glory of a procession coming his way. Music and flower petals are filling the air. The scene has so much power to refresh the soul that the narrator doubts that anyone who ever heard this music could ever get sick or grow old. And the narrator asks his guide who the woman is for whom all of this is being done. And the guide says, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. The narrator says, she seems to be a person of particular importance. Yes, the guide says, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. The guide goes on to say that every child who met Sarah Smith became her son or daughter in the best possible way. And to say that every man who ever met Sarah Smith loved her in a way that made their love for their own wives truer and deeper and richer. And every living thing that Sarah Smith touched, human or animal, had its place in her love. And so the heavenly guide concludes, in Sarah Smith, each one became themselves. And now the abundance of the life that she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. So brothers and sisters, I ask Jesus for eyes to recognize the Sarah Smiths of this world, and we have them in this church. 
people who have minimal recognition or honor here, but through whom our God is building his kingdom. I want eyes to recognize the little and the least and the lost and the last for whom Jesus is so carefully setting a table. Because we're all looking forward to being together someday, the greatest and the least in the eyes of this world. And we will come to the table as peers, no one having earned their seat, everyone entering as a beloved guest, wholly dependent on the host's invitation and sacrificial love poured out for us on his cross. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts. Let's pray. Lord, you bless us here and in the heavenly realms with everything we need in your Son. So forgive us when we think what gives us status or power in this world is not what gives us status or power in your kingdom. Forgive us when we're dazzled by the kingdoms of this world and when our perspective on living toward that kingdom becomes discouraged by real and present challenges right in front of us. Help us to see that all we have belongs to you. Help us to follow your example for those the kingdoms of this world overlook. Help us be wise. Help us do this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.